This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Randy Neighbors as he talks about Can Presbyterians Reimagine the Church? Randy is Senior Coordinator of the New City Network. This seminar was recorded at the 2021 General Assembly in St. Louis. Let's listen as Randy Neighbors discusses Presbyterians reimagining the church. Okay, on your handout, I've basically articulated three goals for this seminar. And the first one is that elders might take a realistic look at your own congregation and decide if, where, if they are where they need to be. I don't mean the address of what corner you're on. I mean the progress of your life as a congregation, or are you at least heading in that direction? The second goal is that elders might take hope, have faith, and be encouraged that God does have more for them, can do more through them, even if they can't yet see the limits of it. And thirdly, that elders might resolve to ask and imagine from God for their congregation and to take steps to call their people to faith-based action and prayerful imagination. Amen? And by the okay, let's make one rule. You can say amen out loud. It is okay. And I will encourage you to do it. And every once in a while, I will sort of imply that you should be saying amen. All right? So if I say Jesus saves, thank you. Okay. And pardon me, I am obnoxious. I confess it right at the beginning. Uh, Also in this uh, handout sheet, you'll see verses uh, that you can use, hopefully, uh, to impact what I'm talking about. Then there's a little uh, section on comparison. Because as we talk about imagining what your church could be, sometimes the temptation is to compare yourself with other congregations. And I want to give you permission to do that as long as it's not jealousy or envy or resentment. Because believe it or not, you can learn from somebody else's church. Thank you, thank you. Okay, then I do want to remind everybody about the gospel of grace, all right? We can't do this job well without God's grace. 
And so I, I, I haven't come to te- do this seminar for you to beat you up or to make you feel worthless or a failure because uh, be- as a pastor, there are plenty of times I don't need anybody else but to make myself feel that way. But it is by God's grace that we achieve anything in the call and fulfillment of our ministry. And we may actually break up into small groups because I've got questions for you, for yourself, for the congregation, and together for you and your congregation. Uh, So you'll see them on page three and four. And then there are broader uh, questions they're called aspirations. And I, I ask you specifically to think about people in history, contemporary pastors, and uh, contemporary churches that you admire. And then the, the last part of it uh, is really for you to write down your next steps. So uh, I've, I've given you different ideas in here. I hope that you, as you take it with you, they might be able to help you. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to work off a PowerPoint presentation it probably won't work uh, exactly as I wanted it to because I couldn't remember which uh, flash drive I had it on, so I had to email it to myself. So it's PowerPoint, but ineffectively, all right? So the first, the question we start with in this seminar is reimagining the church. Is this possible? Now, you probably have heard the joke about how many Presbyterians it takes to change a light bulb. And there are various answers to that question. You know, one is it depends on how many subcommittees have to be involved. But the main answer to the question of how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb is change. (laughs) And so that's why I asked the question, is it possible? To even have this discussion as uh, people in the Presbyterian Church in America, it can, it can, and maybe it should be a little threatening to all of us. So here's the question that kind of underlies it. What do you wish your church was like? Now, there may be some of you here today who would give up, get up testimony. I can't imagine a better congregation than I have. I can't imagine a more godly group of people than I have. I can't imagine a better cooperative spirit between the session and myself. I can't. Do you wish your church was better than it is? I mean, just be honest with yourself. Do you, do you, now, I will say to this, and, and probably sum up the whole seminar with this, if you don't wish it was better, there's something broke in you. If you don't have any aspiration for your people or for what God could do in your people, where's your faith? I said I wasn't going to beat up on you, but every time I do that, remember grace. Okay. So... What is your dissatisfaction in your church? Whether you're a pastor, a ruling elder, or a church member, is it with the evangelistic and baptismal growth that you're experiencing? And, you know, ask yourself, how many adult baptisms have you had in the last year? How many people are coming to Jesus Christ through the work of your 
ministry, not just you personally, but your whole church? Are you dissatisfied with the spiritual depth of your people? You know, one way you realize how deep they are, of course, is in times of suffering and in times of conflict. You see, what people really believe, what they really hold on to, is it with an absence of joy or emotion? Now, that word, you may say, emotion, what has that got to do with church? What does it have to do with worship? Read the Psalms. Is it with theological ignorance and illiteracy? Is it with congregational unity? So on, on any given general assembly, there are pastors who come who have come from the battlefield. That is, their church is at war with itself. People are angry. They may be angry at you. They may be angry at the session. There may be a schism and factions in the church. Is it a lack of congregational flexibility, motivation, and obedience to Christ? Is it with a disconnect from culture, community, and real-life problems? Now, one of the things I do is I go around the country and I train pastors and try to help congregations. I ask them a very frank question, and that is, if your church burned down tomorrow, would anybody in the neighborhood know it was gone? It seems to me that if we are fulfilling what it means to be salt and light, a city set on a hill, that passage is not about America. That passage is about the church. You know the song, This Little Light of Mine? That's not about your personal witness. That text is about the church. It is a corporate light that shines so that people might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Are you disconnected from your community that needs desperately to see those good works? We're basing our seminar today primarily on this passage. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. There it is. You are biblical if you actually apply your imagination to your faith. This is not heresy. To say, Lord, what is, what is ahead of us? What more could be done? What more needs to be done? What do you want to be done? He's able. He's able. He's able. So some things to realize. It is God who's able to do, not you. God didn't intend to build the church on our wisdom, on our intelligence, on our skill, on our charisma, on our giftedness. He intended, he, he intended to use you, but all of the power comes from him. 
If this is not a spiritual work, if this is merely a work of people who get super educated in college and seminary and read a lot of books and maybe take extra courses on management uh, or maybe some counseling courses and you've got all of the training and if you rely, this is the secret to success, you miss God. Don't leave God out of the church. Don't leave God out of the ministry. There's a power in you, and it is the power of the indwelling spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, does anybody here believe that the Holy Spirit has anything to do with Presbyterian theology? Would you raise your hand if you believe that? Because if you didn't raise your hand, you obviously do, are not committed to the confession. You know in our, our confession's full of testimony about the Holy Ghost. And that's where you really believe in the Holy Spirit if you call him Holy Ghost. <laughs> but people can't believe the Word without the Holy Ghost working through the Word in their hearts. Nobody got saved because you were brilliant. Nobody got saved because you were an effective arguer. People are saved because the Holy Spirit breaks their heart, opens their eyes, illuminates them. They are born again. They are regenerated by the grace of God. And they embrace by faith the work of the cross. And they're justified by faith. And this seminar is a call to faith. Great faith. I am convinced that we have too many irrelevant churches. Too many churches that are just totally self-focused, taking up space, wasting time, and no power. No power there. What, what a terrible dry thing religion is without Jesus. Okay, so things you can't see or imagine are the very things God knows. Now, that is, I, I confess, that is a difficult verse, isn't it? Who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. Okay, if I can't imagine it, how do I ask for it? I haven't even thought it up yet. And here's the cool thing about the Church of Jesus Christ. It doesn't depend on your ability to envision the future for God to have one. The things you can't see or imagine are the very things God knows. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean he can't provide it. And as somebody who grew up poor, I grew up in the housing projects in a broken home in Newark, New Jersey, and uh, I have lived my life in ministry often way ahead of the money to pay for it. And people often have told me, stop, we can't do that. We can't plan to do that until the money is in. And you try to help people, baby, it's, it's the mission that drives the train, not money. You cast a vision, you pray, God provides, you do it. If you wait Till you got it in the bank, you're not going anywhere. I'm not advocating living on credit. I'm advocating stepping out in faith. 
So Ephesians 3 calls us to big asking. So what, what boundaries are there in reimagining the church? And the first boundary we have, and these are good PCA boundaries, is Holy Scripture. All right? And the good and necessary inference of what is in Scripture. But we are also bound by our unity and submission to one another. And I confess, there's sometimes people say, Randy, why are you still in the PCA? You seem too edgy to be in the PCA. And I said, because I love being in a denomination that's committed to the word of God. And I know that in my own personality, I can be a wild man. I need to be held back. Now, I don't like being held back. I'd like to drag my brothers with me. But I need accountability. What, primarily the reason I entered the Presbyterian Church was because I knew I was a man who needed accountability. Uh, and I'm going to confess this publicly, but I'm a sinner. And maybe you have moved beyond that. But I need people to speak into my life and to correct me when I'm wrong. And so submission to my brothers is very important to me. I give up certain things to be in the PCA. Please understand that. And I give them up by choice. Because I want your love in my life. I want you to speak prophetically the word of God into my life. And I want to be able to speak it to you. We are constrained by our mission that is given to us in the great commission, in the great commandment, and what God says uh, in Micah 6.8, what his will is for us. And we are also bound by culture. Now, we're going to talk more about that culture in a moment. And, ooh, there's one at the bottom of the slide. The regulative principle of worship, which is found in Deuteronomy 12.32. And, you know, people, especially if you've never, if you don't know the churches that I represent, New City Fellowship, sometimes people wonder, do you, do you guys believe in the regulative principle of worship? And my answer is, yes, we do. Do you understand what it is? Because basically, we are not allowed to put into worship anything that's not commanded us in Scripture. Amen? So do you shout in your worship service? But the psalm says, shout unto God with the voice of triumph. Do, do you clap in your church? Do you dance in your church? Now, you know, what's funny, come on, Psalm 149 and 150. And, you know, part of our history with the Covenanters is, you know, we only sing psalms, no instruments. And you say, how do you sing Psalm 150? And that's where our break was with the RPCNA into the RPC uh, that became ES. You know, that yes, the Psalms teach us to use instruments 
that like everything that has breath, praise the Lord. So part of our thinking about the regulative principle of worship is not Geneva. And it's not Scotland. It's the Bible. And so you have to be humble before the word of God. And you have to be wise about culture. We all live in culture, but there's many of them in the world. And one of the great things about our mission is that we are crossing culture. And when we cross culture, they don't talk like we do. They don't sit still or stand still when they sing. All kinds of things happen when your eyes are open to culture. And they're not ungodly or sinful. They're just different. So, yes, we believe in the regulative principle of worship. We just wonder if you do. So reimagining is not reinventing. It's not revising scripture. It's not relishing our own preferences. It is not rejecting culture or history, tradition, and legacy. Then one of the great things about uh, our denomination and our, our history is that we look all the way back to that apostolic movement and we see the continuation of the church. It's all of our history. And every culture in which the gospel has gone into becomes collectively part of our history. And we get to celebrate it and enjoy it. And obviously, what happens in our, in our theological struggles is we wind up picking and choosing, this is the best time in history for worship. And so I'm going to go back 500 years and take the people that know nothing about Christianity and help them to adopt that culture. You're screwed up, if that's the way you think. It's a part of our legacy. It's a part of our history. It's wonderful, but it's not everything. Okay, it is being radically and consistently biblical, being culturally and emotionally intelligent. Uh, brothers and sisters, I really want to submit this to you. Uh, you, all of us, need together to be growing in our cultural intelligence and in our emotional intelligence. We, we have done a lot of work in our theology. We have studied hard. We, 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 you know, one of the great glories of the PCA is we are pretty exact about what we do and do not believe. But we don't always know how other people feel and how people think. And part of our job is to take the blessed word of God and apply it to real life. And for that, we've got to keep learning culture and emotion. This is not a denomination of emotionless pastors. Thank you. Thank you. All right, it is being compassionate for your community and congregation. Being flexible is to structure methods and style. Bring, now, and I, you know, some of you might be really nervous even at this point to say, flexible in structure, methods and style? You're, you're starting a war. Let's keep going. Being prayerful and in tune with the Holy Spirit. 
applying theological and biblical values and adaptive strategies and seeing the congregation as more than a Sunday morning listening group. This slide asks really a question. The economic and social condition of your community and flock either or not, it either frees you from doing the good deeds of food provision. Now, let me, let me back up a little bit and tell you why I'm asking this question. Most of you, I would probably say, would call yourselves middle class. Is that not true? Would you nod your head for me? You and your congregation would be mostly middle class. Do you worry on a Sunday morning if your people have had enough to eat that week? That's usually not your concern, is it? Was it the concern of the early church in Jerusalem? Absolutely. That's why in Acts chapter 6, they're feeding widows. You know, a few chapters before that, people are selling their land and they're bringing the money and they're laying it at the apostles' feet. That money was the money that they bought food with to feed the widows. That's what it was for. The church had to have a concern for those. Most of our pastors and our churches are never trained to think that they might have to be the first responders to economic need in the community from which the people of their church come from. So the economic and social condition of your community decides for you what you have to spend time at. We are blessed in America with so, such a nice standard of living that there are things that our pastors never think about until disaster comes. And I'm here today just to tell you that sometimes disaster shows up. Do you, do you care about the medical care of your people? Are they getting adequate medical coverage? Economic development, are there any jobs being created? Or do you, you, we don't even have to think about that. I don't have to think about employment for my people. Everybody's got a job and they're pretty good jobs. How about providing housing or insurance? You know, churches in this country were some of the first organizations that came together to form insurance to help people pay their medical bills and to provide burial for them. Why do you think there's so many cemeteries around church buildings? It was a communal ministry to the people. Elderly and widow provision. Now here's another thing that's something that Americans we never think about. How many of you spend any time with your elders trying to figure out where to secretly meet so the government doesn't catch you? It's not a concern we have. Hallelujah! But you know there are some Churches, our brothers and sisters, have to spend time on that very thing. We don't have a building, and if we had a building, it would be dangerous for us to go there. We have to figure out where we can meet. Government interaction and navigation, language, 
Even weddings and funerals become something that we can be nonchalant about, or we can say, you know, if we don't do weddings for people, there won't be any. You know, one of our brothers, Alton Hardy, down in the Birmingham area, African-American pastor, he has this passion to see young men in the black community get married. Because marriage is dying in the inner city among the poor. We have children in the inner city. They've never been to a wedding in their whole life. None of the people in their family are married. Funerals, adoption, foster care, alternative education, advocacy for policy. You say, Pastor, this sounds like an awful lot like politics. All I can say is politics ought to be what you're forced into because you love your people not because you've switched the gospel to some political agenda. So, it's also taking risk, asking hard questions of ourselves, our practices, our styles, our prejudices. Like, again, how much of our worship is biblical and how much is cultural or tradition. Listening to the members and the community have any of you ever gone outside of the doors of your church and asked the people who live around it what they think about your church? It might be enlightening. Examining our standards and historical practices for both effectiveness and actual biblical obedience. And then again, you see me increasing our cultural intelligence. Okay, so what prevents you from taking these steps? What is your intimidation? Is it, I will lose my job if I talk like this, if I go back home? Well, you will go back home, but if you talk like this. Is it elders and members who will resist? Is it, is it the presbytery? You know, isn't it a shame that anybody would exist in this denomination and live with some kind of fear that at any moment charges would be brought against them. I mean, there are times to do that. I've done it. There are times you have to stand and defend the word of God. Amen? But that's not the fellowship that we are. That ought to, should not be the preeminent thought in our minds. If I consider change anything, the presbytery is going to come down on me. Is it the book of church order? Now, brothers and sisters, in case you haven't figured it out, that's changeable. And it always needs to change to conform to the word of God. Now, this last one here, your need for approval and comfort. And that's where I've gone to meddling a little bit. Pastors, one of our great sins that we are prone to is the need for the approval of people. And we're not going to make progress for the kingdom if that's our idol. So I'll tell you what reimagining doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the blessings God has already given you. I don't think this uh, encouragement in Ephesians chapter 3 is for us to look at our church and just complain. 
Um, in fact, you know, for many of us, our churches are, far, are probably far better than they deserve to be uh, because you're there. Um, God had, sorry. You know, God has worked in spite of you. Hallelujah. It doesn't mean that you should allow Satan. And please remember this as you, as a pastor, as elders, as people who love your congregation, and I really hope you do. I hope you love the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Don't allow the devil to dump guilt on you for what you're not. Or resentment for your people. I was once with a group of pastors and they said, I'd be a great pastor except for the members of my church, you know. And it's such a ridiculous idea because they are the proof. They are the fruit of what God is doing in us and through in us. It does mean asking what should we be? What could we be? It does mean knowing the difference between physical and practical steps and those of faith and spirit. Now, I've, I've been to a lot of seminars. Even when I was at Covenant Seminary as a student, Dr. Rayburn uh, interrupted our semester and made us, he brought in a consultant and spent, we spent a week on church management. Because he, as he had gone out and visited alumni and students, he was appalled at how terrible pastors were at administration. I don't know if I learned anything because I was also terrible at administration. (laughs) But after that, I I, I went to a lot of management seminars. I've been to all kinds of church growth stuff, you know, uh, evangelism uh, training, always trying to learn different things. Nothing will substitute for faith and the Holy Spirit. Get as much training as you can. But remember, this is a spiritual work. And and you've got to have a passion that your church could be better. Is everybody in your neighborhood saved? Are all the poor fed? Is there justice for everyone? You got work to do. So where does our resistance come from? A lot of it comes from our own cultural captivity. This is the way we were brought up. This is what we've learned to do. This is how we do it. And when somebody brings in a new idea or even a new ethnicity comes into our congregation, we sometimes are, are lost. I, here's a horrible story in our denomination. We had a group of people from Nepal show up at one of our churches, and they said to the pastor, we have been here for about a year. We came as ig- ig- immigrants. We are Buddhist and Hindus. We don't know anything about Christianity, but we're in America. We think we should become Christians. And the pastor said, it's not that easy. We're going to need a few months of classes. So they they gave him classes, and they wound up baptizing a whole lot of them, and they joined the church, and most of the white people in that church left. Here, missions came to their door. 
and they couldn't handle the cultural change. We have a lot of work to do. We have ethnic, generational, and other prejudice. Now, I'm a baby boomer. I think the millennials are messed up. That's a prejudice I need to get over. Is my resistance from a lack of faith, is it fear? Is it ignorance of how do I do it? Is it an inability to lift up your eyes? That comes from Jesus who says, lift up your eyes. The fields are white already to harvest. They're waiting to be harvested. You don't have to do anything. They're already ready. Or is it your satisfaction with being right and good enough? You know, I, I can tell you personally, as a PCA pastor, it's very important to me to be right. One time as an army chaplain, I uh, reported to the head chaplain at a post. And uh, as I walked in the door, he asked me a typical question that army supervisory chaplains ask, what denomination are you? And I replied, I'm a Reformed Presbyterian. And he said, oh, and he, he just got cold. And he said, you're the people who always think you're right. And I, he outranked me, so I didn't come back with a lot of smart-alecky <laughs> answers. But I wanted to say to him, why would you be in a denomination where you thought you were wrong? <laughs> I like being right. But sometimes thinking that I'm right prevents me from taking a step of learning. So here are personal steps. Seek a repentant heart. Resist defensiveness. Ask for a godly vision. Gather prayer partners. You, you need help to pray through this. Think, ask, analyze. Resist a critical or blaming spirit. Some of us get caught so much up in what our church ought to be that it's not. We begin to criticize everything and everybody there, and that's death. Don't do that. Your people need encouragement, not condemnation. Amen? Listen to what you might not want to hear. You know, we get, as pastors, we, get, we live with criticism, and it's hard for us. People will criticize you, what you wear, what you don't wear, what you said, what you didn't say, what you mentioned in a prayer, what you left out. Listen. Pray for personal revival. Pray for congregational revival. Begin to paint mental pictures of what could happen in the church and through the church. Listen to testimonies and get people to give testimony. One of the, one of the poorest things we have in PCA congregations is a lack of testimony. I know, I know we want you to be licensed and qualified to preach, but believe me, you're not the only one who's got good things to say. It's hard for me to believe that. So do you really understand your own culture? I mean, there are books written about cultural intelligence. Go get one and read it. Can you missionally adapt to other cultures? Do you really understand, here we go again, the regulative principle of worship? Can you lead? I've had to learn the hard way. Leading is not just telling people what to do. 
It's modeling it. It's having influence. It's loving. It's being patient, waiting for people to be ready. So what about your pattern of work or pastoring that needs to change? And again, I come back to Matthew chapter 5. Is anyone giving glory to our Father for your good works as a congregation? The reputation of your church is a witness to the glory of God or not. I don't care how great you are as a pulpiteer uh, with Calvin's Institutes and the doctrines of grace. If your people are not salt and light in the community, you have not preached well enough. You are giving information. And a lot of it is people are becoming like a dead sea. They fill up with all of this great stuff and they never flow out. More hard questions. How much joy and emotion is there in your worship service? <laughs> One minute. Do you preach on issues that affect the community, such as justice and mercy? How many of you have ever preached a sermon on justice? Not too many hands. Does the Bible have anything to say about it? Yeah, I would think so. I've read it. What kinds of mercy are your people challenged to show? What good deeds are you calling your people to do? How many and how big could de good deeds be that arise from a congregation? So, I'm going to go on to uh, my last slide. The devil hates you, and there will be warfare. People don't like change until they like it. That was profound. Somebody ought to write that down. <laughs> Your motives will be suspect. You might forget grace. Don't forget grace. Don't just tell your people what to do. Tell them that the Holy Ghost can help them do it. You might fail. But failing by trying is not defeat. And if you succeed, you might like the credit. Give it back to the one who actually brought the victory. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.